Hey, what's up, y'all? Welcome back to another episode here on Real Resilience with Matt Lestalia. Me, your host. Happy to have you. Good to see you back. Today, I wanted to discuss something called critical thinking. Now, there may be immediate questions um, as to why we're discussing this on a show about resilience and motivation and determination. Um, And there may be questions as to why or thoughts where it's like oh I already know all about critical thinking and and that's basic and I do that all the time and there may be other people out there who say I don't know what critical thinking is or I've heard of it but uh, isn't it just thinking about things critically (laughs) and well yeah (laughs) it's it's a good way to sum it up but I wanted to discuss critical thinking today because I feel that the ability the skill which critical thinking is it's not necessarily something that we are born with it's not a a trait that that is intrinsic in people it's actually a skill that we have to identify learn how it's done practice how it's done and refine it in ourselves over time and it's something that we're never going to be perfect at because we have built-in biases within us um, and biases that we pick up through our own experiential existence over time and so i think that it's important to be able especially now especially today to discuss and uh, identify and understand what critical thinking is because it allows us a greater amount of resilience it allows us to save time and to really kind of squeeze the most out of life and and when i say that i mean i mean like the actual good juice not just everything not letting everything through it's kind of like a filter um it allows us to optimize our resources time mental capacity you know i I like to think about this i've heard this i forget where i heard it originally i'm pretty sure it was on a podcast i know i've heard joe rogan talk about it on his show um and i think that he got it from somewhere else one of his guests but i don't remember but it's a great analogy if you think about our minds as kind of like internet modems in your house now when you when you think about the internet that you're using and and the kind of limitations that you have like maybe you have an internet service where it gets throttled down after you use a certain amount of gigabytes uh in a month maybe it's you know a thousand gigabytes and maybe you're just constantly you know using your internet and you hit your thousand and it's uh and it's gone i guess that would be a terabyte right (laughs) at any rate all you techies out there bear with me i'm not one of you but i will attempt to communicate with you from a layman's perspective so um so if you think about it uh in that regard um we kind of have these these capacities when it comes to how much we can do at once and how much we can do um, overall and the speed in which that we can do those things. And so you think about if you open up 25 different tabs, you're downloading 35 songs, a couple podcast episodes, you know, some books, and you are streaming 
music or, or videos and from Netflix and it's it's all going off the same modem, those download speeds and everything are not going to be as, uh, for your songs or podcasts or books, they're not going to be as fast as they would be if you weren't streaming and if you didn't have all the tabs open and you weren't like, you know, gaming actively at the same time. <laughs> I'm imagining somebody like gaming while they're, while Netflix is on and and music is, is streaming and, and they're, you know, like all of the things where you're not taking anything and it's just like this blast of constant media. I'm sure there's some of you out there like that. I'm not too far away at some points myself. But, uh, but the point is that basically we have a kind of limited amount of bandwidth, right? And, and you think about this at any given time, it's multitasking is very difficult to do um, unless some of the things that you are doing are automated, um, as was his name, Daniel Kaufman, I think his name was, uh, talks about system one, system two thinking, and uh, basically fast think, slow think. And so if you have some of these things in, in the system, I think it's system one, where you are basically uh, things are on autopilot when you think about like driving or walking, um, or even things around the house, if you're taking the trash out or if you're vacuuming or you're cleaning and wiping things you know like a lot of these are not very cognitively demanding right so it's like you're you are downloading something that you know that is that is very small or uh, it, it doesn't draw a lot of the bandwidth out so it's there it's happening in the background but it's not really that big of a deal it's not it's not taking away from things you're able to simultaneously hold a conversation with somebody or you're able to simultaneously uh you know listen to an audiobook or listen to a podcast listen to music um all of these types of things chew gum yeah walk and chew gum walk, chew gum listen to a podcast uh so you're able to do those kinds of things but imagine trying to do imagine trying to let's say vacuum like you're vacuuming and you are listening to a podcast and you're trying to have a conversation with your spouse or your kids, whatever. And I, I imagine the difficulty that's going to come with that, right? And it's going to come because we don't have the the kind of bandwidth to hit all of those things at the same time. We can really put our cognitive focus to take in information from like one thing at a time. So it's cool to have some passive things going on in the background. Sometimes I like to have music playing while I'm working and sometimes I don't. It just depends on kind of how I'm feeling that day. Uh, but it's never possible for me to listen to an audiobook and hold a conversation with my wife at the same time. I can't do it. It's, I, I'm, not, I'm either not going to listen to her, which is very bad for me in the immediate and long term, or I'm not going to be listening to the book and I'm going to be missing, you know, potentially valuable information to, if I'm listening to a nonfiction book, you guys get it, right? And so we are like that. And so the point of, of this again is to help save us time so we spend less time kind of ruminating about things that maybe aren't worth ruminating about. Uh, and also that we are able to <clears throat> save uh, our time when it comes to actually ingesting content and able to kind of brush aside those things that aren't as relevant to us. You know, I think about this, I learned about this when I was an intelligence analyst um, in the army 
and we had talked about the difference between information and intelligence. You know, if, if someone, if you have a report coming in from a squad that just went out and they're just saying that they identified, you know, some threat that's in this area, um, them coming back with that information is information. You know, you might think it's intelligence, but it's not intelligence until it's kind of analyzed and assessed in the broader scheme or broader scope of events. So that might just be that threat. Maybe it's a group of military-aged males that are gathering over there, but maybe it's some sort of a ceremony. Uh, maybe it's, uh, you know, a barbecue, you know, and maybe it's not, it's not, uh, what we would think, um, as a threat group at that particular time. <clears throat> now, if we got reports, if we're getting reports from other people that we saw, um, the day before a, uh, a shipment of guns dropped to that same location or, you know, these barrels of unidentified material, you know, maybe it, it cues us to, to want to get more information, figure out what's in the barrels, kind of keep an eye on it and see what's going on. So we gather information, right? We assess it, we analyze it, and that turns it into intelligence. And so it's kind of the same thing that we're talking about here. You know, we see we, we're bombarded with articles and with, you know, constant media about different things, all trying to grab our attention, right? It's it, We're in an attention, in an attention war right now, right? Everyone is seeking our attention because that is how all of the content providers are making money. That's like the new model is how do we get people to pay attention? We get people to pay attention, then more people pay attention, then, you know, the higher our numbers are and the relevance of that, you know, for a, a, a content creator, a, you know, TV show, whatever, is more people are there. And so advertisers are more likely to want to pay that content producer to put advertisements on their in their show, you know, during commercial breaks or have like podcast hosts, like I'm sure you guys are well aware of, read read ad reads and, and the ones who are making money through those ad reads are the people that have big audiences and the bigger the audience, the more likely they are to buy those things, right? You have more shots to do it and you're getting the information from somebody that you trust, you know, and rather than kind of the typical news media outlet realm. <clears throat> so that is why we're looking at this because we want we i've recognized that right now more than ever and continuing to be for as far as we can kind of foresee in the future this is going to be a growing trend not a declining trend we're going to keep moving in this direction of of more ads targeted towards these towards audiences because that's how people sell their products and and it's not i'm not saying even necessarily this is a bad thing but it's also um because that's how you get goods and services that you want and how you become aware of goods and services that maybe you weren't aware of before the issue is when we're getting when this happens through and what i'll be discussing today is when this happens through um news articles or articles that reference scientific studies that are trying to persuade you to think a certain way to feel a certain way about something because that leads to what we had said earlier that rumination and so if you're getting all of these articles that are saying this is bad this is bad this is bad and look at the different ways that this is bad then you can 
you know, you you will eventually kind of be pulled over to think like, yeah, maybe that is bad. I keep seeing all these things about it. And so if you're not able, if you haven't refined your skills of critically thinking, then it's going to be hard for you to look at an article and not just take what they're saying kind of at face value and as fact, because, well, they've done their research. They're, they're referencing scientific studies that have done. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to challenge that? Well, that's what we're going to be discussing today. <laughs> so it's actually how to do that. And so if you are a person who is interested in in being able to kind of read between the lines and to understand a little bit better what's going on and what kind of manipulations are taking place and how data can be misrepresented, um, that's kind of where we're going to be focusing. And it's all, none of this is, none of this is politically bent i'm not coming from a premise I'm coming from as an objective of a place as i can and like i said the point is that i want you guys to be able to spend your time how you choose to spend it and to feel and to create or have like emotions in response to the most accurate facts or, or with the best understanding of what is out there and, and how well grounded some of the information that's being pushed at you is. So we're able to negate unnecessary and erroneous or destructive content from kind of like our consciousness. And we're able to do so rapidly so that we can move on to the next thought, to the next action and eventually hopefully right if you guys are working and taking action appropriately appropriately the next achievement so when we're talking about critical thinking what i guess we should probably start with like what is it right and so um i pulled up this definition it's it's objective analysis and and evaluation of an issue to form a judgment right and so that is kind of like what we talked about right and it's the key here is when it says objective analysis. So what does it mean to be objective? It's it's taking out those biases that we talked about, right? So if you're coming from something, from a perspective of you already have a kind of preconceived notion or conclusion in your, in, in your mind when it comes to a particular topic, um, you know, that's gonna be a bias. So you're going to naturally feel a certain way about certain types of articles or whatever that comes out. And so what, what inspired today's episode why are we talking what what made me talk about this now versus two weeks ago versus a week from now well you know we respond to stimulus in our surroundings and i was reading some news articles and there was an article that was published a few days ago in a website called healthleadersmedia.com and it was entitled adding to sleep adding sleep problems to COVID-19 challenges for nurses. And in this article, they reference a study that, uh, a study on sleep and nurses that's found on what's called a J-O-E-M, or it's the Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. And so they were wanting to discuss sleep and, uh, and how this impacted how nurses are being impacted by the pandemic in the area of sleep, like how, how all of that is kind of playing together. So I want to discuss sleep and critical thinking. I've actually wanted to discuss both of these things for a while. And then this article popped up, which really triggered me to 
to go ahead and do those both things. It didn't trigger me like made me feel bad. It like triggered action. And so I was like, okay, well, let's do it. So uh, I'm, I'm actually going to do two episodes kind of on this. This one is going to be about the article and about kind of understanding how to read articles in a more critical uh, fashion with, with the art and skill of critical thinking, um, understanding what the kind of scientific uh, what different types of scientific methods are or experiments are in order to achieve results that are then extrapolated and sent out in um, in what's called generalizing, where you take a data set and you apply it to a larger population or, you know, worldwide or whatever the case may be. Um, and so kind of a better way to, to think about that. And then the next episode I'm going to do will be more focused on sleep itself and kind of what what sleep is, what are the benefits, what happens when we don't get it, is there a correct number of amount of sleep that you should be getting, and all of that good stuff. It's, it's all tied together. It's all very important to our performance and our mental resilience. And so today I wanted to start with the critical thinking aspect. Um, and so, like I said... We want to be looking objectively, right? We want to remove these preconceived notions and personal bias to the best of our ability. You know, when, when we're going into reading or, or taking in new information. So here are some signs of lack of objectivity. You know, when you heard the title of the article, you had an immediate feeling of confirmation, like, oh, yep, that makes sense. I feel it in my gut. You know, like that's that's a bias, right? Um, or if you had one of dismissal, like, oh my gosh, here we go again, another thing about COVID. Here, like, here it is. Uh, it is um, these are these are biases that we have, and one of the best and really what should be the first step in critically reviewing an article or a piece of information is to not say I'm not going to have any bias when I go into this, right? Because that's not possible. You're going to have your bias. The best way and the first step that you should always take is to openly and outwardly own your bias, right? Even just say it out loud, like, oh, I'm, I don't think that this is true. Even if you just say it to yourself, you know, or you just at least consciously acknowledge it. But if you say it out loud, it's like there's something that happens when we, when we actually take thoughts and we turn them into words because, it, you know, it's like we hear it and it becomes more kind of concrete. Like, oh, maybe I shouldn't, you know, maybe I'm, I'm going to challenge that. Like there's a natural instinct to kind of challenge that once we lay it out in that fashion. So then you want to put on your best, you know, skeptic hat, <laughs> uh, which is essentially the desire to challenge your own side, right? In this case, you know, uh, an easy way to do this practically when you start reading is to simply ask questions, right? You don't want to accept things at face value. So you want to ask questions about it. It's what you would do. And this is this is not going to be challenging for somebody who is on the dismissal side of hearing the title of this article. Um, it is going to be on the people that kind of because they're going to naturally want to question and we'll get into that type of bias later. But this kind of applies to the people that are like, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Definitely makes sense. Um, and, it, and it might, it might. And so having that kind of mentality really helps you know and that might be true if you if you're able to start there I'm like I'm definitely leaning towards like thinking that this is right I wonder um I wonder what kind of information they have about it you know how are they gonna what did they do to bring this to light 
you know, what experiments were done? How did they, uh, you know, achieve empirical data uh, to come to their conclusions? What, you know, and then what are their conclusions? So some core questions when reading any article or scientific literature um, are, are these, right? So one, consider who is the source, right? Is the source an expert in the topic? So you think about this, especially when you're reading articles, like who is the person that wrote this article? You know, do they have, are they just a journalist? Are they a specific, like, uh, like a medicinal journal journalist? Are they... You know, do they only write about one specific topic? So they've done research, or are they current events, or are they political? Um, and then you can start to identify, like, okay, now I know a little bit about this person, you know, and uh, and I can start to take that into consideration with how I'm going to view the information that they portray in this article, because they might have a place that they're coming from. They might have an objective, right, to achieve in writing this article. Um, you know, do they have, even, even if maybe they have a bias, maybe their organization has a bias, you know, if they, if it, we all know the national news, uh, station. So if you have like CNN or MSNBC and you have an article that's coming out from them, you can generally assume what perspective they're going to be coming from. And the same thing from Fox news or whatever the other, uh, Republican or conservative sides are, you're going to be able to identify that uh, kind of from the get-go. Like, okay, if they're writing from here or if Fox has let them in, then they're going to be coming. It's unlikely that they're going to be coming from a point that challenges the uh, the kind of big talking points for, um, for their side. So pay attention to the organization, pay attention to the individual. And then you want to look at, you know, kind of like the you almost want to start at the end, right? So at the end of an article or at the end of a study, you're going to see kind of their substantiating documents. Like what what resources did they use to come up with this? And just an easy way, because it, it's very hard if you're not really well-read into this stuff in any particular topic, which I'm not. And so one way to just do that is to kind of vet it and to see the relevance of it is to check and see when the reference like if they're using a bunch of different studies to kind of come to a conclusion you can look at the dates of the studies if they're all 10 15 20 years old it can lead you to ask some more questions like how valid is this now you know what what types of studies were done what do they do then but what is it you know why hasn't there been why didn't they reference any studies in the last 15 years did there were there studies did they not look at them on purpose because they're going to show a different conclusion it's those kinds of those kinds of things right like I said, timeliness. So it's timeliness. Um, the actual content of the study. So a lot of times people will reference a study that was done and that step to make a point in their article and that maybe the title of the study um, kind of leads to the pointed conclusion that the article wants to go in. But maybe the study itself is not that. Maybe it came to different conclusions. Maybe it's they're pulling out this one small portion of it, but they're missing kind of the overarching theme of the conclusion from the scientific study itself um again the source so you think about the source of of the scientific study which again if you're not super red in that's going to be difficult to do so but 
um, one thing that's but that's then hard to do if you're not familiar with it um, is looking at what method of discovery did they use, right? Does and does that method of discovery make sense? And what are the pitfalls and benefits of that particular type of study? Um, and then and then really practically, when you're in the article, right? Look for hard numbers and and the specificity or the vagueness of terms that are used around those numbers, right? If you see something like proves or it's proven or it's 100%, these are red flags, right? This is, these are pretty clear indicators that they're using very strong language when that would not be used in a sort of, um, uh, in a more scientific method, uh, more scientific approach to looking at data. <clears throat> You'd be more likely to see, uh, you know, this supports the evidence or this supports a theory um, rather than it's, this is proven science, you know, or there's a consensus because it's very rare that there is an actual consensus, you know, if we look at what consensus means. Um, <clears throat> but look at the actual article and, and, and start with hard numbers. So in this article, when we look at it, the numbers that they put out in the article is it says they've surveyed science researchers uh, surveyed 629 nurses and interviewed 34 um, from 18 states. Now, the base rule, <clears throat> the general rule when it comes to any sort of scientific experiment and when you're trying to, you know, do that generalizing that we're talking where we're taking a, a the results of an experiment, the conclusion, and we're trying to apply that to the broader population at large, is that the more people and the more diversity um, and the, the the varying age group and sex and gender and all this stuff and, <clears throat> and experience and, and all of that, all of having all of that in over a very widespread number of people is is important because the more people the better you know it's that is how you get more accurate data it's very hard to take an experiment ran on 50 people and say okay well we did a survey of 50 people and now the conclusions of that are fact-based across uh the world you know it's not enough it's just not enough people so the more people the wider the net <clears throat> you know where those people are from and 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 all of that so and even an additional base rule is like i said you want to include so you have a wide net and then you want to include variations of the of the demographic right sex age location culture like we just talked about um another look at the numbers from this article though so we look at 629 surveyed and, thir and 34 interviewed, and this is across 18 states. You think about 18 states, like that's that's a pretty decent number, right? It's not half, you know, it's, I don't even know if it's a quarter, I'm not good at math. No, it's uh, more than a quarter, right? Yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> um, so, but not terrible, right? Good 18 states, but the problem is, um, and, and they might say this in the study. The problem with this study and, the, and generally scientific studies uh, at large is that you have to pay <laughs> to, to get access to the full thing for a lot of them. And uh, I didn't. So it might say it in the study, but in the article, they don't talk about it. 
um, you can see the abstract of the study when you go to the actual website, but you don't see without getting past the paywall, which I think is an issue in and of itself. I think that the science science should be out there for everyone to see, uh, and I don't I don't like the fact that you have to pay to see the results of these studies that are done. Um, especially if it's done by uh, you know a public institution, which I don't know. Maybe maybe that is the case. Maybe it's not. I'm not. I'm not the expert on this and how funding works. So all I know is that I had to pay for it and I wasn't going to. <laughs> and so like I said, the study might say it, but the point that I'm getting to is not really about the studies as much as it is about the article itself, right? So 18 states, but we don't know what the spread of the states are. It does not tell us if all of these 18 states are generally on the East Coast, West, Western area, Midwest, or the South, um, or the spread of the majority. If there's like, you know, 17 in the Northeast and, and you know, one uh, in New Mexico. Like, it's that would be a, a non-diverse look at the spread of states. And then you look at the numbers of the survey itself, right? 629 nurses. And there's no mention of the variability of the demographics in the article and, and not in the abstract for this study either. Not, you know, And not that there necessarily should be in the abstract. Uh, but like I said, it's kind of a pay-to-play thing. So it's, it, it'll be there in the methods, almost certainly. So 629 nurses, though. This is what we know. Um, and 35, so this, if we took 629 and we did an even distribution across all of the states, we would be looking at about 35 nurses from each of the 18 states. And this is at its absolute very best. And so we're looking at, you know, 35 nurses to represent a finding, uh, you know, from a state now what <laughs> that like i said if you had 50 people and you're trying to extrapolate the data from that into something larger that's not a very good uh base run you know and especially when you're looking at if you took 50 people from the united states and you, and you tried to apply it to all people in the united states it'd be very hard to do that. if you took a thousand people it'd be very hard to do that because uh you know you don't have the diversity you, you need people from different states from different ages different locations um and it's just like i said it's just not enough people and so you know what one of the things again that we don't know is we don't know what the diversity of even the hospitals that these nurses are working at you know like ours think about a comparison um between nurses that would be surveyed in syracuse new york versus new york city Right, even that within the state would vary greatly, and, and, and it's the same state. You know, you, now you think about like, you know, Terre Haute, Indiana, where I'm at, town of sixty thousand people versus you know Los Angeles, whatever, twenty some million people. You're gonna have a different type of setting. It's it's the sampling's not gonna be right. You're not gonna have this consistency, um, and so like you would have a better shot at it if you had a wide a wider net you know 35 people from a state as a rule of thumb for anything you know you spread it across 18 states uh if you see a trend here with this with you know 
35 from 18 states. The best conclusion that you should be able to come up with is something along the lines of, you know, we need to do more research to confirm our priors, to confirm what we found. Like if we found a trend, then like, okay, that's interesting. I wonder if this actually applies because we didn't, we don't have a good number of people. <clears throat> and, and like I said, keep in mind, this is at its very best by the numbers, you know, at its worst, there could have been 612 of these nurses from New York or California or anywhere, Missouri, and then one nurse from 17 other states, you know, uh, or, you know, 17 nurses from 17 other states, individualized. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, we don't know. And I'm sure it says it in the study, but they don't say it in the article. They don't, they don't mean, they don't validate this in the article. So, I can either assume that they did their homework and that all of this information is valid, or I cannot. And a lot of that will be based on those biases that you entered into the article with, right? And so then you, you go <clears throat> to the next next part about this. You know, they interviewed 34 nurses from 18 states. That's the same conclusion, same everything we talked about, except the, the data set's even worse, right? Um, extremely low volume you know we don't know the men versus women ratio we don't know the years of experience we don't know the ages we don't know if there were sleep what percentage of these people had sleep issues prior to the pandemic or familial or genetic predispositions for sleep problems that came up that would have come up at the time anyway were triggered by it but were in kind of in the making regardless we don't know the number of people the number of nurses that were affected personally by that pandemic you know where they lost a loved one like that that is a huge consideration um, we don't know the location of the volume of patients per shift per nurse like i said you know new york city versus Terre Haute, gonna be quite different <laughs> so if we're just focusing on the high volume areas i mean then you could say that but then you can't extrapolate it to nurses as generalized in the title of the article right in order to bring your attention in this is again this is why we're doing this we're doing it to to allow you to be able to effectively challenge or you know and then accept or not accept the premise of the article and if they're saying that COVID-19 has presented more, has presented sleep issues for nurses. That's, that's, a, that's saying all nurses, you know, you could scope it down to saying nurses in the United States, but I'm sure that, you know, if asked them, they would extrapolate that across the world because there are nurses across the world that are dealing with a pandemic that is global. So what do we know about nursing? Well, I looked up the demographics, right, on USA.edu in 2021. These, these are the numbers that I have for the United States. There's almost 4.2 million registered nurses, 950,000 LPNs and LVNs um, in the United States. And there's over 325,000 nurse practitioners. Th th these are the people that are licensed as nurses in the United States. Uh, and just as a fun tidbit that they threw in at the end, there are also um, four times as many nurses as there are physicians. So that's... You know, fun fact, not really particularly relevant to this, but hey, you know, there's a lot of nurses out there. So if you're not familiar with this, then you you may be overwhelmed by the information. Um, but just consider that the questions, the base root of the questions that we've been asking are actually not complicated. The information might 
appear to be complicated that you're reading, but the questions that you can ask can be simple, right? What are their ages? What are they? Where are they located? How many were there? You know, and and does that sound? Does it make? Does it kind of make sense that we should apply? 600 what the results from 629 people across a population of 4.2 million is that like do we feel like we're stretching you know i kind of feel like we're stretching i don't i don't feel like that's a good base representative for 4.2 million i'd love to see the percentage i'd, I'd have to pull it up <laughs> to see it's low we'll go there it's very low uh percentage of the population that were surveyed and that actually brings me to uh, this idea about the types of the types of research methods that there are. So this one is a survey. Surveys are cool because they can they're they're not a lot of uh, it doesn't take a lot to do them right. You have to take some time and really kind of formulate your questions in a way. And if you're doing it right, you want to formulate questions in a way that um, that don't lead people in a particular direction that are really just kind of neutral and trying to get a grade of where people are actually at without leading them in one way or another in any way <laughs> so you uh so it's so it's hard and you have to understand how to develop these types of questions in a survey and how to kind of create uh counterbalancing questions in order to to see if people are you know to try to really get to the truth because here's the thing about surveys the good thing about surveys is that, like I said, they're easy to do and they don't take a lot of time um, compared to other types of experiments that can be done. However, um, and and before I get to the however, <laughs> and uh, you can send them out to you know thousands, tens of thousands of people and to to get responses, right? And that's the benefit is that you can spread a super wide net. Um, because there's not a lot of limitations on that. Once you create the survey, the survey's done. You know, you have it created. It's not like you have to redo an experiment every time. You have one survey and you send it out. And so the fact that only 629 nurses were surveyed, it leads me to question like, why? Why were there only so many when surveys are the easiest form of experimentation to do and the easiest to spread out? Why would there only be 629? It's, it's an interestingly low number for the types of results and, and types of numbers we usually see in surveys, which are much higher than that. Um, 34 interviews, right? Very, very low, very low. So, you know, again, it's just like, well, I wonder why. I wonder why there were only that many. Well, maybe it says in the study, but again, in the article, they don't talk about it. So, and then you have to consider, so now here's the however, you have to consider the fact that um, a lot of people don't tell the truth. <laughs> it's crazy. I know everyone you know always tells the truth forever. So this this is definitely not going to make sense to any of you, right? Because everyone in your life has always told you the truth. But uh, but here's the deal. So people like to be represented or like to represent themselves in the best light possible, and so they will answer questions or or um in a way that deems them of value in the uh in the survey questions <clears throat> and so when when people are asked you know 
how much they drink, a lot of times they will answer with lower amounts than they actually drink because they don't want to be seen as an alcoholic. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and the same would apply, you know, across, you know, if, if they're looking for, and, and there's also kind of an observer effect. So if they're asking about sleep, depending on how they formulated the questions and how they kind of counterbalance them, um, there's, there's a propensity to be like, to in your mind to then realize oh maybe i have been having sleep problems maybe you know that's that's interesting and, and maybe it did get worse over here because like you're kind of being cued by the questions so uh that's that's always a big that's kind of like the big downfall of surveys is, is these components of people not necessarily telling the most accurate truth or or not being very good in self-assessment and uh trying to answer in a way that they think that the researchers will value so, again, it's about asking the simple questions, the things that kind of common sense questions that, that can come up when you, act, when you start to think about it, when you start to look at numbers and then you can start to, to develop this. And, and as you do, you're gonna get better with it over time. So you wanna ask these, I'll give you examples. of These are the types of questions that you can ask when you see an article, you know, each article that you choose to actually read or you see a headline on. Um, and you keep doing this and in time, you'll, you'll be better at it. It really doesn't take that much time to start getting better at asking questions. So you wanna think about the types of studies. You know, there are quite a few out there um, and some of them are best served for different situations and to answer different questions. And so I, I, I don't really wanna to get too much into that because that's gonna turn into like a whole class and it would be very boring. So I trust me, I know this stuff. I don't, I didn't just like, come up with this off the top of my head I've, I've been taught this in very formal settings of education about how to analyze studies and in which studies apply where and so it's it's not exhilarating stuff but it is cool to once you understand it to start applying it into the real world um but i will say that um most people are familiar thanks thanks to recent events <laughs> with these experiments that are called randomized or double blind controlled trials um or even perhaps you guys have heard the less frequently termed uh name of triple blind and so these are very frequently put up as the gold standard of experimentation you know and and randomized controlled trials are so what they, basically what it is it's it's when people are randomly assigned to groups right to it's usually it's like two groups so you have one group that gets the actual treatment and another group that gets like a sugar cube or a sugar pill like a placebo basically they're getting something that they think could be treatment you know or that they think is treatment um and the the blind part about this is not not literal it's not like researchers are walking with blindfolds on um it's simply that the the data collectors that are collecting the information and, and recording the data um, from the effects on these patients are not aware of which group has the placebo and which group has the treatment. Um, and so essentially, if my understanding is correct, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but triple blind is when um, the people that are overseeing the researchers are scientists that are pulled out that weren't a part of the initial kind of experiment itself. So, the, so you have, think about this, you have like a scientist who's like sitting down and he's like, I think that I've come up with this idea um, and I wanna test it. 
And so I'm going to get two groups to kind of test this idea or to test this drug or whatever. And, and this group's going to have this and this group's going to have that. Well, what happens on a triple blind is on a double blind, you have the patients don't know, right? That's the first blind. They don't know if they're getting the placebo or if they're getting the treatment. The double blind is the data collectors don't know if they're getting, if which group is getting placebo and which group is getting treatment. Triple blind is that researcher who came up with it is removed and there are different people that are brought in, different scientists that are brought in to receive the data that's collected and then they assess the data and then they give those results to the initial scientists who kind of came up with the idea. That's how you make a triple blind. I'm pretty sure that's right. Double check me if I'm wrong. So, um, is double blind randomized controlled test trials, are those good? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, now, the fact that people are calling them the the gold standard is interesting because um, even according to uh, when I went through a course back in George Mason neuroscience, there was a like an ethics part and kind of understanding scientific research. And I'm actually going through it again at Purdue Global. Um, another one, just the same. <laughs> another reason that I got queued up for this episode is because I'm getting all this input in from all these different locations. Um, but when I was at George Mason, and this was as recent, I was there in the fall of 21, right? So during the pandemic, I highly doubt that their, their take on this has changed since then, but it is at best the third on the list of most accurate or most beneficial or, you know, kind of best types, gold standard types of studies. Third, right? <laughs> it's not number one. I don't know if that's gold. I don't know if they got platinum and, platinum and diamond, but um, then maybe it's gold. But um, it falls behind two other types of uh, studies, which are basically systematic reviews and meta-analysis, which essentially for all, you know, keep it simple and not to go super boring. It's basically where you take a large group of studies that are kind of different types of studies around one topic or one drug. If, you know, you do uh, different studies to see if a drug is effective. You do a, a double-blind controlled, randomized controlled study. You do these other types of observational studies and you have all of these different studies and you have somebody that reviews all of the different experiments that were done from all these different kinds of studies and then they make an analysis based on the totality of that, which is better than any sort of single scope of a study. So... Earlier we were speaking about biases, and that's that's something that I definitely wanted to hit on. I think it's a little bit more <laughs> exciting and exhilarating. If you're still here, mad props. <laughs> I, I know this is probably one of the most uh, one of the more data driven and and not super uh, riveting <laughs> episodes, but I'm but I think it's so important that I really I I knew that I needed to do it, even if it's just for me. So we're looking at biases. Uh, some I'm just gonna hit some of the most common ones. Cause there's a ton of them. So you have the heuristic or experiential kind of thinking or or confirmation bias, and that is essentially what we were talking about earlier. Where if you hear something that you that it coincides, like you get a new piece of information that coincides with a belief that you already have, you are much more likely to take that in with much without much challenging. Versus if you have a belief and then you get a piece of information and that challenges or contradicts that belief, you are much more likely to start intrinsically or naturally asking the questions that I've been prompting you to ask when you see these articles. And so basically you want to think about it like uh, from that perspective. If you, if you look at an article and you're like, 
Okay. What would I be asking if I didn't agree with this? <laughs> and it's it takes um, it takes a level of caring about a topic um, to want to venture to do this. It takes courage to challenge yourself because you're putting yourself in a position where you could be wrong. You could be terribly wrong. You could find that out. And that's scary because you've been operating under certain principles. And so you you don't want your kind of psychological world to come crashing down because some of your core beliefs are challenged and then you don't really know who you are anymore. And so that's why I think uh, I love the idea of not being married to your thoughts, right? You have thoughts, you have beliefs, but like you can be separate from, you can have them like, oh, I think that this makes sense. And based on what I know and understand, I think that this is a good way to operate um, in life and how to move forward and how to, to progress and, and be successful and help others. But but holding it like that, where you're like, I, from my understanding now, that's what I think. So if we can if we can kind of precurse our thoughts and beliefs with that, then I think that that would that would be very beneficial and make it a lot easier to engage in critical thinking about a plethora of ideas, including ones that we do currently hold. Um, and so there's <laughs> uh, there's another one that's really good. <clears throat> I really appreciated the examples that I've seen on this. Uh, and so there's there's one basically it's like uh, causality versus correlation or causality bias. When two things happen at the same time, or and really it's more if they happen over time, kind of at the same pace and they're increasing or decreasing relative to each other. <clears throat> Uh, there was an interesting study that was done. I, I'm trying to remember the dates. I think it was 2001 to 2009. Um, they looked at, and I don't know. It's so interesting when you find this stuff because you have to think like there was a person out there that that saw this and put this data together. They had to like what what sparked this. And so uh, what they did here was that they looked at mozzarella cheese consumption over this eight year period and the uh, the number of civil engineering doctorates that uh, the number of those that were being awarded from, I, like I, said, I think it was 2001 to 2009. And so, <laughs> and they increased at almost the same rate. When you put them on a chart, it's like almost exactly the same. There's like one spike in mozzarella cheese or in doctorates, I don't remember which one that kind of went outside of the realm of the other one, but then went right back to it. And then they shot up to the same, like it was hilarious. And so basically it, was, it showed something that was like nine pounds of cheese consumption per year, <clears throat> per person per year, I think it was what it was, per 475 doctorates awarded in civil engineering. Then like some eight years later, uh, 10.5 pounds of cheese was consumed and there were 700 doctorates awarded and the pace per year it was like they they ticked up right next to each other and so the, uh, it, it's very interesting because because they're going up at the same rate at the same over the same period of time there are extrapolations that can be made about this uh, and <laughs> you could say something like you know uh, eating mozzarella cheese makes you more likely to to proceed to your next level of civil engineering degree uh to your doctorate or or civil engineering students like to consume mozzarella cheese you know <laughs> it's something that's obviously uh um correlative but not causative right it's there's no causation there it's that there's not it doesn't pass that test but it's also it's just not there in the science so um it's not causal it's simply correlative 
and that's an easy one to kind of see uh versus some other ones like uh there was an interesting one where there was uh <laughs> um what was it uh crime and ice cream consumption went up during went up ebbed and flowed in the same pace for some period of time some years and they were trying to figure out like if you know did you just and do people that commit crime like to eat ice cream after they've gone and committed their crime or did they uh um you know what was it and so it wasn't proven but a, a theory that was kind of posed to make sense of it is that it was actually the heat people in poor areas that maybe don't have air conditioning are are overheated and more ag more easily agitated because you're uncomfortable most of the time and so you're getting into these kind of disputes uh, maybe it's easier to commit certain amount of, certain types of crime when it's warmer out maybe you don't want to rob a rob somebody's house when it's negative 20 degrees but when it's 90 degrees it's more uh appetizing you know and then at the same time when it's hot people are going to want a cold tasty treat um but what i wanted to get that's fun right this, this is a bunch of them but it, it, so you can see that it's not um not causative there's no causation it's correlative um it's not not likely that people that are uh committing crimes just you know really like ice cream all of them <laughs> and so but but to the point of this episode and and to kind of bring things home um the type the most relevant bias to this article is more along the lines of and it's something that i tapped on throughout the analysis of it as we went through is something called sampling bias and that's when the assignment of individuals to groups is self-selected right so it's not random um and then when the sample group is not representative of the population or the group or the sample that you're actually um that you're trying to derive a conclusion about right uh let's look at a, an example outside of the article just to kind of bring this up so um a study shows this is this is a real thing that happened there was a study that showed that americans were more interested in politics than was previously thought right interesting okay kind of makes sense we're getting it feels like things are getting more political um in every which way um the, so looking at the study though the researcher approached people this is like their method so they went and approached people at events you know, such as you know, town hall meetings city council meetings and they surveyed them about their beliefs about their interest in politics and and what was their likelihood of voting you know what was their voting behavior and it turns out that 70% of those surveyed reported that they were planning or they were going to vote in the upcoming election, whether it be local or national, they were, they were going to vote. 70% of them were going to vote. More than half said that they regularly read articles um, in the newspaper about political issues and if you think about it, if you think about the uh what the what the problem is i wonder did you guys put it together already if you didn't think about the sampling bias there like how did they did they diversify their group so so earlier we talked a lot about demographic um sampling issues because that was more 
that that was more relevant in the article um, to that group and to looking at the study uh, because it was based on sleep, on something that we, we all endeavor upon, right? <laughs> and uh, this is different the sampling bias here is not a demographic thing or is not uh in that same sense it's it's more about beliefs or or activities the propensity to participate in certain activities and so if you're taking if you want to extrapolate information if you want to go and approach people and ask them about their likelihood to participate in a certain type of event like you take the same thing and you take it to like a jazz festival and you say you go up to these people at this jazz festival jazz festival and you say how likely are you to go to uh a jazz concert in the next six months or how likely are you to go to a music concert in the next six months well chances are if you're going to people that are at a jazz festival they're likely to go to a concert right because they enjoy music they're already out there doing the thing and that was the same thing with this study was that they went to people that were already participating in political type events people that would get up leave their homes after work leave their homes and go to city council meetings town hall meetings and participate there of course honestly i thought i think the numbers are lower than i would have expected if you got these people that are showing up to town hall meetings and only 70 percent of them are saying that they're going to vote that seems really low <laughs> like you're you're the type of person that's going to get up and voice your opinion in a meeting but you're not going to vote there's 30 percent of people there <laughs> that that do that and only half like over half what, it was over 50 percent of people said that they read articles in the newspaper but they go to the town hall meeting it's like those numbers seem really low <laughs> So, so, but it was more, it was more than we thought, right? And so, because you're taking the kind of premise from the, the national population and then you're putting it onto this group. And so I actually think if you looked at it and made a projection based on that, it would have been low. That's just me. Um, and there's a 10 more biases. And I just want to throw out a couple of common ones. And, and, you know, depending on the feedback, if you guys are interested, I'd be more than happy to kind of bring in additional bias we do like little little tidbits on different types of biases i enjoy talking about them it's it's good to kind of speak about them then you as we do that you become more aware of it and you can you can take corresponding action um now notice like i'm getting ready to wrap up we're almost done <laughs> we're almost we're like at an hour so a key note here is that i want you to notice that we haven't even looked at the conclusion of the study or what implications are being inferred by the article or by the study. Um, and what this, the reason that this is, and the reason what the first step does here and what we did is to help advocate for that skepticism, right? In our minds before seeing what people are proclaiming to be fact, you know, for all nurses. And we can make that kind of assumption that they were shooting for that in the article, not the scientific study necessarily, but in the article because of the title, right? And that kind of made you, that's the title that made you feel potentially one way or another. Um, we can kind of make that assumption there because it said nurses. It didn't say nurses in high volume areas, whatever. There's no kind of caption or, or sub note there. And to the purpose of this show, you know, I, I don't care about what the conclusion says. You know, I had an added advantage here of, of kind of being on the side of like, oh gosh, here we go. Another, another COVID scare article, scare tactic. Um, you know, this whole outrage porn as it's being called, where like, you know, people are, are publishing articles in such a way to make you, to, to gin up 
emotions because the more emotional you can feel about something then the more likely you are to want to engage with it you want to say oh my gosh this is so bad i need to read it and see what's going on my sister's a nurse i'm a nurse you know whatever uh my brother is my my uncle what doesn't you know the more that you they can gen up emotion and the more they can use fear the more clicks they can get like i said it goes back to that advertising goes back to that pay model goes to the war over your attention so is this article I'm not, to be clear, I'm not saying that anything said in this article is false. Rather, um, to say that titles are constructed to gen up the emotion, right? And they use the broad, general, generally sweeping statement on a study where they, <laughs> they looked at 629 nurses and tried to extrapolate that to in the title of the article not in the study necessarily and they try to extrapolate results from 629 nurses surveyed we talked about the validity of surveys and 34 <laughs> that were interviewed across 18 states uh and trying to extrapolate that to a population of 4.2 million registered nurses you know it's it's i think it's a it's a long stretch now does it make sense that there might be more sleep problems in nurses because of the pandemic and, and the crazy working conditions. Yeah. Is it, is it something that's spread across nurses nationwide, worldwide? I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say. I've seen a lot of, talked to a lot of nurses here and anecdotally, it seems they don't seem super stressed out, but I'm in a low population area. How many nurses work in low population areas? It's uh, it, it, it's something that requires more information. Like I said, the best thing that you could come up with this is like, hey, look, we saw this trend in this very small population group. Let's, I think that warrants us doing a, maybe another survey and spreading it out and getting it to 10,000 nurses. Imagine the results there, what you'd get to see. And if they tried to account for some of these things that we talked about, like are there pre-existing conditions? Where there, are there genetical factors that come into... Uh, uh, play for for sleep issues you know it's just the whole point like i said i want to have you guys gain another tool another understanding another way to look at things to challenge just challenge your propensity to just read something and say okay well i mean somebody published it and they referenced a scientific study so it's gotta be true um, and it's like I said, it's not to say that it's not, but you want to look at the validity. How true is it? What's the percentage of this article is, you know, how, how close is it to accurate? Um, why would they use a generalized title like that, spreading this out to all nurses um, when they only surveyed 629? Did they know? Did they not ask questions, you know, or, or were they, did they have an agenda? And these are the type of questions. I don't have the answers for it. I'm just saying these are the type of things you can, so you can kind of take it with a grain of salt. I'm like, okay, well, maybe if I see four or five other articles about the same thing and, and I, I can start to look now that I've seen this and I, and I don't really like how they did the numbers and I see another one's like, oh, they did like 1,200 people. That's twice as many. So I wonder what they found. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's tools in the kit bag. It doesn't have to be about this. It can be about anything. It can be about your business. It can be about personal life, relationships, whatever articles you're seeing because we're constantly bombarded with them. But when you see articles, you see titles, you could start to 
start to really kind of break them down a little bit more effectively. And then you don't have to sit there and ruminate and have these things floating in the back. You're like, oh my God, the pandemic is still going on. It's so bad. And these nurses can't sleep. And you know, what else is going on? And it's helps to eliminate that and, and refocus your bandwidth. You can, you can refine and flex and, and get this tool really tight. And then you can do this because we spend a lot of time here kind of breaking it down, but you do it and it goes really quick. And you figure out like, oh, wow, they did a lot of people from all over the place. Like they did 30,000 nurses and they, 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 you know, checked for these kind of variations and they're talking about that in this article. That's crazy. That's really cool. Um, I, I wonder what, uh, you know, I wonder what conclusion they came to. And then you can kind of check that. And so that's, that's what I'm trying to get at is, is really getting you to be able to optimize your time and not lose yourself in the in the attention war. Don't lose the attention war because they're fighting for your attention. So hopefully this is beneficial. I hope you guys liked it. I enjoyed it. It's a good time. <laughs> I will see you here again for another episode of Real Resilience here in the next couple of days. Peace.